Loving Father God, <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your blessings. Lord, here we are, the second Sabbath of camp meeting. Seems as if it's just flown by. Father, this morning we have gathered because we love you. We've gathered because we want to be a blessing to others and we want to receive a blessing from you. But above all, Father, we want that you would be glorified in our lives. So, Lord, I lift up our Sabbath school panel, lift up those that are here. And, Lord, may all that is said and done be to your glory and honor. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm excited about our Sabbath school panel this morning. Uh, we met last night just to, to go over what our thoughts about the lesson this past week, and, and it was a real blessing. So we're praying that the Holy Spirit will guide us as we discuss the lesson as the, the same way we discussed it last night, uh, maybe with, a, with some new points coming out. To start off, I'll have everybody introduce themselves. Um, can say, we'll say what your name is first and last, um, and what you do for life. Not the cereal, like what you do in life. <laughs> Sorry, I had life cereal this morning. Okay, uh, my name is Siku, and I work with the Public Campus Ministry Department. Uh, and that's, oh yeah, first and last. My name is Siku Dako. I'm getting used to my last name. Um, it's a new one on me, uh, and I work in the public campus ministry department. And my name is Autumn Osterman, and I am a teacher, but I'm currently going back to school for nursing. Uh, my name is uh, Marcus Peters, and I'm a mechanical engineer. My name is Amy Ratsara, and I'm a lawyer. My name is Kiran Koya, and I'm a biomedical researcher. Okay, awesome. I'm going to move this so I feel like I'm more. Um, let's have a, a word of prayer to start our, our Sabbath school. I'm going to ask uh, Autumn, could you pray for us? Heavenly sure. Father, I just pray that you will be in our midst this morning as we open your word. I pray that you will send the Holy Spirit to uh, direct our conversation, to direct the, the enlightening of your word today, that we may go forth from here being um, blessed and knowing that we have a deeper relationship and encounter with you because of the time we've spent with you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Right, to, to start off, we're going to read scripture this morning. Um, so turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Um, Matthew 26. We're going to read the whole chapter. And the challenge, my challenge to you, um, so early in the morning is not to zone out while we're reading the entire chapter, okay? Um, so maybe let's take five verses each. Uh, Kiran, could you start us off and we'll go? Okay. Uh, chapter 26, Matthew. Yeah. Matthew 26, starting from verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, <clears throat> You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up, delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill, and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly, fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head, and as he sat at the table, 
But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests, and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. So from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Verse 21, and as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Verse 46, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took up the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of wine from now on until the day that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and said unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be very sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and said unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, stuck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled? This, that, that it must happen thus. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily, and I, I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Verse 57. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to prove to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. And said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it with which these witnesses against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said... Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Verse 65, Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. 71. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. 
Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Amen. thought we should read through the entire chapter because... Even if at the end of the day we don't have anything to say, if they heard the word of God, then somebody's going to leave blessed. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> okay. Um, but let's get started. This is, this is a, a heavy chapter, like a really uh, solemn and a very somber one. Um, but let's start all the way at the beginning. The first, let, let's, let's actually start with, um, let's start with the story of the woman with the alabaster box. In verse 6, Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and there comes a woman having an alabaster box. Now, um, I'm just going to open it up for discussion. Like, what, what about this woman and, and her experience with Jesus struck you as you were studying this week? Like, was there anything that, that you said, whoa, I never saw it that way, or it, it struck you in a new way about this woman's experience with Christ? Okay, um, this is my favorite story in the Bible. Um, you know, like when I was reading this story, okay, she came and then she broke the perfume and then poured it on him. Of course, this is expensive. It's expensive as much as one yearly wages and all that. But why does Jesus have to say that? As long as this gospel is preached, the deed of this woman will be remembered. What is so significant about this act? You know, when we read the spirit of prophecy and when we analyze several other things, we realize that Jesus had been very lonely. He came in for a certain purpose. He came in here to die and to give us salvation. The disciples, he was telling them again and again, they wouldn't get him. He was explaining him, I'm going to go and then die in two days. One of you is going to betray me. Still, they didn't get him. He felt extremely lonely. He was like, these are the people that are with me for three and a half years, and they didn't get me. And he was sympathetic to their foolish understanding, because they were thinking in their mind, we want a Messiah to be this king with violence who will liberate us. But the choice that he was chosen is to liberate them with love. So here comes this woman who was, you know, in, in, if you read in, in the other chapters of the um, like Mark 16, 9, and Luke 8, 2, it says that Mary Magdalene was forgiven seven more times, right? First time she was caught committing the adultery, they almost killed her. He, he forgave her. After that, she repeated that six times. But during that six times, even though she's sinning, we can know from the story that she was sitting with Jesus, sitting at his feet listening to the point where she neglected her duties, and Martha complained. So even though she's sinning, even though she's struggling with the demons in her, whatever that is, she kept her connection with God, and that connection with God healed her. And now she realized the worth of the salvation, the love of God, and she wanted to show her appreciation. The alabaster box and then the perfume usually, like you know, some people say, some scholars say, she bought that, that such expensive gift because... She's a prostitute, and then prostitutes use perfume to identify themselves or like make themselves better than others. She didn't need that anymore. 
And she wanted to show her love upon him. You know, the perfume that was on his hair, you know, these are the perfumes with oil based. They stay for like a whole week or two. As Jesus was going through these trials and temptations, when people were beating him, spitting on him, nailing him to the cross, he smelled this perfume, and this perfume reminded him of the love and the faith this woman had upon his work. Mm. She understood him, even though she didn't know what she was doing. That's why this work is of great significance. Mm. And I realize sometimes, how many chances do I have to show my appreciation for God? And how many opportunities did I leave and missed, like the other disciples, like the Simon that was there who called for the feast? Mm. I think, you know, when you join the church, at least when Christ has forgiven you, you've been your savior and you join the church, it's, it's very easy to be misunderstood, right? You're, you're zealous, you want to show your love for God. And even in this, um, in this experience, you know, the disciples were indignant at her for what she was doing. But even sometimes in a very mundane task which she could be misunderstood, we see in this case that Mary was actually fulfilling prophecy. In Psalms 23, you recall when Jesus says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies, thou anointest my head with oil. And so she may not have known that, but even in this very simple task, she was doing something that even Jesus said would be a memorial, which we're reading about it today, but also it had prophetic implications. And Jesus chose, I would say, the lowest of the low to fulfill prophecy. And so I think we could take some courage from that, that you know we too could play a part in his kingdom, whether we are of great stature or even of little stature. The thing I really like about Mary's uh, story here is, you know, Jesus has just completed three and a half years of ministry. And if he could count the number of people that he knows he has impacted, you know, he knows he's impacted people along the way, but now he knows he's being crucified. That the very people he came to minister to and to reach out to are plotting to kill him. And you can imagine in Jesus's last final days leading up to that crucifixion, not that he's necessarily wrestling with it, but, you know, has, have I really been successful? Like, who have I really reached? What, what have I really accomplished in reaching these people that my heart is longing for? And you can just see Jesus in, in this moment, and he has this woman who he has cast out seven demons coming to honor him and to love him. And just, you can imagine for Jesus' heart what a sense of joy that was, that here is one woman who appreciates what I've done. She understands my ministry. She has seen what I have done. And for me, Mary's, Mary's gift here for Jesus is so incredible because she recognizes Jesus as king. You know, he wasn't the king to, rule, to free them from Roman rule. She, she wasn't thinking that. She's like, he's the king of my soul. He's the one who has released me from the demons that have plagued me for so long. And that, that sense of Jesus came to seek and save the lost, I was lost and now I'm found. Mm -hmm. And that story just kind of comes to light here when we see in the final moments of Jesus' ministry on earth. Before you go, Amy, I just, I just want to tie a, a thread that I'm, I'm seeing in the comments so far. Um, Marcus put it this way. Marcus said she was the lowest of the low. And, and uh, Kiran and, and Autumn both said she seven times, like she keeps coming back to Jesus over and over and over and over. He keeps forgiving her, forgiving her, forgiving her, rescuing her from this challenge that she has in her life. And, you know, it makes me think about how sometimes, you know, there may be struggles that we have and you feel like the lowest of the low, like, like the scum of the earth, because you keep struggling with the same thing. But the awesome thing is she kept coming to Jesus, right? And Kiran put it this way, he said, she just kept coming to sit at the feet of Jesus, right? It, even though it took not just once or twice or three times 
four times, or five times. And for us, like if somebody is doing that that many times, you're like, just fellowship them, kick them out of the church. We don't want to see them coming back. They're not serious about their faith, right? But Jesus kept receiving her back. That's, that's all. Amy, you had a comment. You know, Kieran kind of posed a question and kind of answered it, but he said that, you know, one of the amazing things about her is Jesus says is that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has, has done is going to be said. And the question is why? Why mm. is that? And I think actually if we go back to those first few verses that we skipped over, it kind of answers that. You know, mm. we're seeing parallel scenes going on. You know, Jesus is still talking to his 12 um, on the mountain, and meanwhile at the palace of the high priest, they're scheming and they're plotting on their part. But Jesus is telling them specifically in verse 2, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus is saying the exact day that he is about to die on the cross. He's telling them, I am going to die and it's going to be in two days. Hmm. As we go throughout the, the rest of this chapter, we see how different people are responding to that statement that Jesus made. Mary's response to that was to believe what he said and she was preparing him he, he identifies that as that's what she's doing. So she may not have understood in the grander scheme of prophecy and everything of everything that she was doing, but she understood there was something in what he said there, and that was a response of belief. And I think it's because of that response of belief to what Jesus had said is why her story is the one that's guaranteed to be told with the gospel. Mm. Marcus? I think you see like a playbook, you know, just with some of the comments in terms of how we respond to sin, to sins that are strong in our life that has a hold on us. You know, we talk about seven times that she came back and back. But we see that this is not the first time that Jesus, that Mary was actually at the feet of Jesus, right? You know, right. When, in Luke 11, when... Um, Should we go there, Luke 11? Yes, yeah, certainly. Okay. Luke chapter 11. I believe verse 37 to 40 is where that account is. I hope so. No. Oops. Help. Luke 10, yes. Luke 10. Luke 10, thank you. So it says here in verse 30, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister had left me to serve alone? Bitter therefore that she helped me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. And so here you see this familiar account in terms of Mary trying to worship Jesus to be at his feet. She's been persistently sinning, but you could see that she's persistently trying to get into the presence of Jesus. And then rather her having to defend herself, here's Jesus again standing up for her, being her advocate, being her defender. And I'll argue it's the same thing that he wants to do for us, right? The devil is there ready to accuse us, to, um, to speak about our motives, you know, to, you know um, he's using it as a source of conflict. But we see that Mary finds authentic worship at the feet of Jesus, and so can we as well. Awesome. You know, so we have Mary, and, and you, you brought up this point that I'd like to follow now, that, that there were people who weren't happy about the way that she was expressing her joy or her, her gratitude, right? Um, and what, 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 what struck you? Somebody said something, I can't remember who said last night, about, about the contrast between the way that Mary is using money and, and the, the, 
There was, okay, Autumn. <laughs> well, it kind of bridges into the next story. Um, okay. That I thought it was really interesting how the Bible directly um, kind of juxtaposed Mary's story with Judas' story. They're back to back. And the Bible sometimes does that to kind of help us to, to get some contrast and seeing what's happening in the stories. And Mary, there's, a, there's two exchanges of money going on here, right? So Mary exchanges money to buy perfume. Judas exchanges money to sell Jesus. And so we see this, this money exchange, but the, the reason behind that money exchange is completely different. So Mary's response is, I want to honor Jesus. What can I do to honor Jesus? I will buy this incredibly expensive perfume that I've been saving wages and wages amount to just pour on Jesus. And it almost seems like a waste. At least that's what Judas was like. That stuff could have been sold and fed to the, you know, given to the poor. Of course, that's not really what Judas wanted to do. He wanted to pocket the change, right? But for her, she's like, I just want to give something to Jesus. And then Judas goes and he's like, I want to get money because I know I can sell Jesus. And so, yeah, we do see that contrast there. Hmm. The other thing about, uh, I mean, I really like the point that you made. I mean, the contrast between Judas and Mary. If you think about Judas, he's extremely greedy. Greedy for power, greedy for money. He associated himself with Jesus not because he actually wanted to be changed, Mm -hmm. but because he, in his mind, figured out Jesus is a prominent person. He's feeding 5,000. He's healing people. He got to be the Messiah. When he becomes the master, I will be on his right side. Mm -hmm. With his greediness, he wanted Jesus to become the king that he wanted, the version of his Jesus, who can conquer the whole Romans and everything and establish his kingdom. But constantly, and Jesus was denying that. And he said, like, that's not the way that I want to go. Mm-hmm. My way is to be denied by all of you, to be rejected by all of you, to die for you. And when he was doing that, he was opposing the, actually he was dissecting the feelings that Judas has. Judas not only had this, you know, thought of servitude towards people, but he also had this ambition. Whenever we are in ministry, it is very difficult to dissect between ambition and the servitude. We become pastors or ministry leaders. We want our ministry to be bigger. But sometimes God doesn't bless it that way. He makes it come like two or three people. They also like criticize us. (laughs) Jesus was criticized. Mm. How many of them actually believed in his cause? Mm. The reason he does is because he wants to dissect that feeling of your ambition versus your servitude. He wants you to be a servant later, not ambitious later. Mm. You see, that is very dangerous and very subtle. And I struggle so many times and I beg God to open my eyes to show me my ambition in the servitude. Mm. Going with that thought of Judas wanting to make Jesus king, it's interesting because Mary already recognized Jesus as king. He was king of her life. Judas didn't recognize Jesus as kingship. He thought Jesus was going to come as the king to free them from Roman rule. And Mrs. White actually addresses this, and it's interesting because she says, Judas did not believe that Jesus would permit himself to be arrested. And so, you know, Jesus is... um, Judas is selling Jesus, basically. You know, he's getting money to say, I will betray him. But he didn't think Jesus would actually allow that to happen. But Mrs. White goes on and says why Judas actually went through this whole exchange. And she says that Judas is even really questioning if Jesus is the Messiah. 
And he says, if Jesus really was the Messiah, the people for whom he had done much would rally about him and proclaim him as king. This would forever settle many minds that were now in uncertainty. Judas would have the credit of having placed the king on David's throne. And this act would secure him the first position next to Christ in the new kingdom. So Judas Mm -hmm. is like, I'm going to sell him. He will proclaim himself as king. I will get the credit, and now I can be his right-hand man. And then Mrs. White makes a statement I don't ever remember reading before, and she says, at all events, Judas would gain something by his treachery. He counted that he had made a sharp bargain in betraying his Lord. Mm-hmm. And when I read that statement, I was, I was blown. I was like, wow, here's Mary who's giving so much of herself to honor Jesus because she already knew he was king. And here's Judas who just wants the gain mm-hmm. of what that kingship would get. So it was mm-hmm. all about him, all about him. I just want the honor and the glory for myself, so mm-hmm. I'm willing to sell the Lord for what I can get out of that. Mm-hmm. Amy. You know, I think that that's really interesting when you start to look and see we have that contrast of Mary, and oftentimes we think of contrasting Mary and Martha. So Mary's the one who sits at Jesus' feet. She's the one who likes to absorb, to listen, and Jesus tells Martha, you need to be more like that because Martha is the doer. She just wants to do, 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 do. And oftentimes I think we think we're one of those two people. But as we study this chapter, I think there's two other people we could possibly be too. And that's Judas. What is the reason that we're following Jesus? Is it for a pure motive because we're willing to sacrifice everything because of everything he's done for us? Or is it because we think we can gain some sort of tactical advantage? Are we like the politician following Jesus? And then we haven't gotten to him yet, but then we have Peter who he's kind of following Jesus. He goes like, he goes back and forth. Jesus rebukes him a few times, but he has no problem opening his mouth. You know, he's like a speaker. (laughs) He just talks and he talks. So, you know, we could be like Mary and B, we can be like Martha and a doer. We might be like Judas and a politician, or we might be like Peter, who we say a lot, but are we truly converted when it comes down to that, that mm-hmm. tough moment? Mm-hmm. And so I think that it, it makes me stop and think, well, which one of these four am I? Am I we all want to think we're Mary, but am I really there? Mm-hmm. Or am I really more trying to gain some sort of advantage? Am I willing to say all the words, but when the going gets tough, it's tough, you know? Mm-hmm. Or am I just so busy doing things, I'm not taking that time to be with Jesus? It's mm-hmm. almost like the four different types of soil that Jesus talks about. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, before, before we go to Marcus, I, I would like for us to not lose this point that um, I lost it. Okay, here it is. Why are we following Jesus? That was the point, right? <laughs> Why are we following Jesus? And, and I, I appreciated um, Kiran bringing out um, that sometimes you're in ministry and you're doing your best, or you're in your life and you're doing your best and you're giving your all to Christ, and it seems like no results, right? And, and you're working hard, you're praying hard, you're, you're doing everything in your power, and it feels like, you know, for all you're trying, there's nothing good that's coming out of it. Am I following Jesus in order to see results? Am I following Jesus for some tactical advantage so that, you know, my dad always put it this way, um, God wants you to be the head and not the tail, so why would you be a nurse instead of the doctor? <laughs> Sorry, dad. <laughs> you know, this is not recorded, right? But, you know, so is it for tactical advantage? Like, I, I, want, I want God to give me X, Y, or Z. Uh, um, why, why are we following Jesus? Marcus, you had a point. Uh, I forget it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, you see that Jesus is an unconventional king, 
And we could argue that he also ran on, on conventional kingdom <clears throat> in the sense of, you know, all the people that he interacted with, whether was the woman at the well, the man that was born blind, you know, you could see that he respected their individuality. And there's something to be said about, you know, with Mary's experience where she didn't follow that orthodox approach in terms of her expression for, of her love for her savior. And, you know, when you come into the church, you know, you have this sort of prototype in terms of what a Christian should be. And that could sometimes hinder you from really experiencing the joy of Christ's salvation. You know, like you may come into church and you just hear the good news and like, hallelujah, right? If you say somebody looks around like, oh, well, uh, you Pentecostal, you know, like it's very easy to be trapped and to be in bondage to other people's opinions of what your Christian expression of faith should be like. And I think in the case of Mary and all the people who Jesus encountered, we could really say that we really understood their Savior. They weren't inhibited by those um, stereotypes. They weren't inhibited by what people think they should be. They just fully express it. And if you have a problem with it, well, God bless you. And so I think it's something that we need to probably take away that we shouldn't be trapped by um, we shouldn't be trapped by others' expectations of you know what we how our expression of worship should be. Okay. I, can I can I ask a question though? But isn't inhibition good? Can't inhibition be good? Like I mean, you know, some forms of dancing for Jesus might not be appropriate, right? I think you have so, a fair point. It's just within the, the realms of the gospel, right? You know, like the children who came to Christ, you know, like the disciples thought, hey, kids and Christ, that that, that doesn't mix. That, the optics of that doesn't mix. He says, hey. Suffer them to come unto me, forbid them not. You know, when he was coming into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they were saying Hosanna to God in the highest, right? They were praising God, and hey, the others wanted them to, hey, be quiet. Now's not the time for that. And I think a lot of that sometimes we inject our own preferences, we inject our own um, personality in terms of what we think others should be, um, how they should be experiencing Christ. And um, even in the context of music, now granted, I know we're going to right. sort of a dangerous area, but it's something that needs to be said because if imagine if Mary were hindered hmm. in her expression, she'd have walked away with a different picture of Christ. Maybe he might accept Judas's offering. Maybe he might accept Peter, but he can't accept me with all my brokenness because I'm a prostitute. Hmm. And so there's something to be said about allowing us to experience the joy of Christ's salvation within the realms of what the scripture allows. I'll leave it at that. Okay. I think Amy. Um, also to kind of answer that question, there's a, a question we have to ask ourselves before that. Mm -hmm. In general, when you look at the context here, you get it. But when you also go and you look at the accounts of Mary's offering in Mark and in John and in Luke, you see that the people who were there criticizing her offering were not right with Jesus themselves. Mm -hmm. There was something wrong with them first. And it reminds me of going back to Matthew chapter 7. You know, why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you still have a plank in your own eye? First remove the plank from your eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Mm -hmm. So is dancing for Jesus something that might not be acceptable? Maybe, but you better make sure that you have removed all the planks from your eye. You've done that self-examination of your own heart before you, <laughs> determining if you're seeing clearly to see whether that expression is right or wrong. So, so what, I'm, what I'm getting is... Um, I'm going to summarize and then you guys can clarify. <laughs> what I'm getting is uh, when someone has had an experience with Christ, the way that they express it may or may not look acceptable to us, but who am I to judge them? 
kind of, I mean, like, don't judge me. Like, let me do what I want to do. Make sure you're examining yourself first before you go and you make the judgment. Okay, so do judge, but judge me first. <laughs> and that might take a while. Because clearly okay. it didn't work for Peter until after all of this. So. Okay, okay. I think we just need to distinguish between our preferences and between the prohibitions in Scripture. That's, I think it's, hmm. if you could say biblically, like, hey, you know, that's not biblical, then certainly hmm. that's your, we want to use the Bible as our basis for hmm. what we do rather than just our preferences. Okay. I'll show you taking hands. I saw Sure, let's take a hand, Will. So Brother Will is saying that um, it's not just what you're doing, it's also why you're doing it, which I think was being set up here, and I was, I was trying to push the ticket. Um, so what you're saying is you could be doing all the right stuff, technically, but for all the wrong reasons. We kind of talked about that last week, Matthew chapter 23, right? You're, doing, you're, you're bringing your, your uh, offerings of mint and cumin and all the stuff, and you should do that stuff, but you're ignoring the weightier matters of the law, right? So you're, there's, there's a matter of motive. I think there was another hand, since we're going to take a hand. Was there another one? No? Okay. I don't know if we should take hands. Like, this is going to be rough. Okay, one last hand, Brother Ray. Because, because we're going to move on, and this is not going to be a seminar about dance and music in the church, <laughs> I, I, I want to, at, at least we can say this much, right? Uh, we can say as much as has been said, is that, uh, yes, there, there are things that are right and wrong in worship. Yes, we know that because the great controversy is all about worship, false worship and true worship. So they are right and wrong when it comes to worship. However, I think the point that's being brought is um, that, that sometimes we get distracted about what, what the heart of worship really is. The heart of worship is that experience you have with Christ, as exemplifies in Isaiah chapter 6. You have an experience with Jesus. As a result of that experience, it elicits worship. And, and just, just so that we can move on... Um, we're, ta we're talking, we've been talking about individuals who's, who've had an experience with Jesus, who had some kind of an, uh, I hate to use this word because it's been abused, encounter. They've had an encounter with Christ, um, and then that results in some behavioral response, right? Uh, for us, for our purposes this morning, what we need to think about is when I encounter Jesus, how do I respond? How, what's my response? 
to that experience that I have with Christ? Am I having an experience with Jesus? And how do I respond to that? Is my response based on, I don't want to act this way because other people are looking at me and they're going to think whatever of me? Or is it really a heart response? Like, I'm not looking to please people. I'm looking to worship my Savior. And I think that also puts boundaries for how we respond, is when we're responding to Christ. Okay. Is that okay? Next year, we should do a dance and music seminar. Pastor Bentley? On the list. All right. Okay, let's move on. Um, I want to backtrack in order to move forward. Amy, you talked about the four different soils, so to speak, um, and, and we've kind of talked about two of them. Uh, let's talk about the third one in this story, Peter. Like, what happens with Peter? He, he's been with Jesus. Judas and Peter have been with Jesus, like, all the time for three and a half years. What, what, how does this impact Peter's life? I find Peter an interesting soul. He was, you know, you look at um, Peter being with Jesus for these three years, and if anyone should have gotten it, you know, he was one of the closest ones with Jesus, right? He was like that, that inner circle of the inner circle. You know, you had the disciples that always followed him around, but then you had Peter, who is the tighter one, you know, that kind of went with Jesus. And so you would think that Peter would be a little smarter to catch what Jesus was saying, but he wasn't. Um, but you see throughout the, the interactions with Jesus, it's interesting because Matthew 16, we actually covered this in the lesson a couple weeks ago, that when Jesus is talking about his, his upcoming death, you know, Peter jumps right in, be it far from you, Lord, that will not happen. And, you know, Jesus has to rebuke Satan out of Peter because he's speaking on behalf of the devil, right? Mm -hmm. So Peter is almost, you know, we have Mary who understood Jesus' mission, we have Judas who completely doesn't care about Jesus' mission because he's only focused on himself. And then you have Peter who's almost trying to prevent Jesus from his mission. Don't die, God. You know, like, don't, don't do that. And so he's almost like kind of stopping Jesus from his mission because he doesn't understand what Jesus' mission really is. But then when you see, and it's interesting because in this story, you know, um, when Peter finally gets that Jesus is allowing himself to be taken, he panics. And he tries to chop off someone's ear, right? And so it's almost like, you know, in his moment of panic, he's like, oh, no, Jesus is allowing himself to be arrested. Let's stop this because this is not supposed to happen. And, you know, Jesus, the, the miracle worker who's cast out demons in calm storms, he really doesn't need Peter's help. But Peter is just like, I can't let this happen to my Lord. And so he still doesn't understand the mission for which Jesus came. You know. Marcus, later. I think in the um, verses uh, 70, where was I? There's a verse in here where he says um, he does not know him. Uh, I believe it's 72. 72, thanks. It says, and again, he denied with an oath and says, I do not know the man. And it's, I mean, obviously he's trying to disassociate himself with Christ, but it's very telling that, I mean, indeed, Peter didn't really know Jesus, you mm -hmm. know. He thought he, at least he knew who he was, but he didn't understand fully the extent of his mission. Hmm. And from this, what I see is kind of the, the limitations of, um, of the spoken word. I mean, the word of God is certainly powerful, right? But I just want to read a few verses here. Look at verses two. It says, you know that after two days is the feast Verse of the... Verse two? Uh, yeah, Matthew 26. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified, right? Jesus is saying very plainly, hey, I'm going to be crucified. And here he's giving a timeline of when that's going to occur. Verses 31 says, then he says unto them, all you shall be offended of me this night, for it is written, not just, mm -hmm. hey, it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. 
But after that, I am risen again. I will go before you into Galilee. He's saying this in their presence, speaking the word of God, right? Verses 34 says, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this night before the crop crows, you shall deny me three times. Again, verses 41 Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So over and over, Jesus is speaking the word to Peter and to his disciples. But we see that their understanding of theological and spiritual issues is limited by the understanding of their own sin in their hearts because they were self-sufficient, right? And because of their self-sufficiency, they thought that they had it. They didn't really, they think that they understood what Jesus was saying, but they didn't really get the point because immediately after that, not only Peter denied him, but they all forsook him. Mm. And I think for us, as we come to church, you're like, hey, you hear Daniel 2, yeah, I know that. Yeah, you hear, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, yeah, I know that. Well, do you really understand the implications of the fourth commandment? Mm. Do you really understand what it means to wash on one another's feet? And I think the first step to understand that is understanding our own sin and then looking at the Savior. Mm -hmm. Just like Mary did, she had a good revelation of her sin because she was looking at Christ. Mm -hmm. Just as Isaiah did when he went into the temple and he saw Jesus high and lifted up, the very first thing he said wasn't woe to the Babylonians. He says, woe is me. Mm -hmm. It starts with a personal, um, a personal revelation of Christ and your sin, and then after you've confessed, then you have the ability to fully understand spiritual things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let Amy jump in and then... No, you're, okay. So, uh, Peter's uh, life story talks so deeply to me because I am that guy. So, mm -hmm. if you think about Peter at the transfiguration of Jesus, uh, you know, he was just like, let me build a castle, for, like temple for you here. And then when Jesus said, you're going to deny me, no, I'm going to stand up for you. So, what he's actually trying to tell is, I know you are God. I accept you, I love you, I recognize that you're my Christ, my King, and everything, you're my salvation, but let me try with my own effort to do something. Mm -hmm. You see, when I became Christian, prior to that I was a Hindu. Hindu religion is based upon works. When I became Christian, for a long time, I'm works-based works Christian. Mm -hmm. It was miserable. I am that Peter. Every time I want to substitute God's righteousness with my own righteousness, Mm -hmm. I am that Peter. Jesus was telling, if you follow that path, you're going to break miserably. Mm -hmm. And for that, even that Jesus understood and he sympathized with Peter. When Peter denied thrice, you know, he looked at Jesus who was being beaten up there by all these people. And the only look Jesus had is compassion. Mm -hmm. And he looked at him. Even the beatings of the people, the tearing of the robes of the high priest didn't bother him much. But when his friend fell, mm -hmm. that hurt him deeply. And today, when I substitute Jesus' righteousness and his grace with my own righteousness, my own works, my own legalism, he looks at me with the same compassion. Mm -hmm. Because he wants to draw me back to him mm -hmm. and teach him, teach me how easy and precious and light his gift is. Mm -hmm. So this danger is so imminent, and I'm scared every time I do that. And mm -hmm. then I remember the look of Jesus, mm -hmm. and I go back to him. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So, so, so just tying this together, what, what we're saying is that um, Peter's self-confidence was rooted in his lack of understanding of who he really was. Like He clearly didn't get what Jesus was saying, and he didn't get it because he didn't stop to actually look at himself. To understand what Christ was saying. Did you have a comment, Amy, or we're going to move on? Okay. Um, I'm glad because we're actually running out of time. 
I, I would like for us to talk a bit about Jesus. We've been talking about Jesus, but to, to focus our attention on Christ. As I was going through the, the, the lesson this past week, it kind of seemed like, you know, you've got, you got Mary here, and you've got Peter, Judas, and you've got Peter, and they had an interaction with Jesus, and, you know, um, how, the, how their interaction with Jesus impacted them. But what does, the, what does the story of Gethsemane have to do with all these guys? Like how, what is, what's the, yeah, what's the connection? For me, it's, it's Jesus wrestling in the garden of, you know, Mrs. White makes the comment that Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb. For, for him to be able to see through the tomb and know he was going to come out a conqueror would probably have made Gethsemane experience a whole lot easier. But when he went into Gethsemane, that was, in his opinion, that was it. You know, like my connection with my Heavenly Father, who I've lived with for ages, it's done. Like after this, my existence ends. And for him to wrestle with that idea of saying, was it worth it for me to come here and to experience eternal death for these people? Here I have Judas, who totally rejected me and is a lost man. I have Peter, who's kind of, I don't know what he is. He's kind of in and out, you know, in his relationship with me. He's, you know, I, I don't know. He's this vacillating one. But then there's Mary. Mary understood my mission. Mary appreciated what I did. And you can just see Jesus wrestling, like, is my sacrifice worth it for these people? And when it came down to it, he's like, it's worth it. It's worth it for Mary. It's worth it for Peter. And it's worth it for Judas. Because I love these people. And it doesn't matter what's going to happen to me. This may be it. But I love these people, and I'm willing to go through that for them. And I think jumping off of that, you know, in this moment, it's when the sins of the world are being pressed upon Jesus. And so those in specific instances that Autumn just, just referred to are the things that are starting to be pressed on him. So when Jesus, the sinless man, the sinless God, is being confronted with the sins of the world, his inclination is to go and to pour out his heart to God. You know, and I think that that's telling for us, too, how um, in that moment where we're confronted with our own sin, what is our response? Are we a Judas? Are we a Peter? Or are we like Jesus? Are we like Mary who learned to be like Jesus and to go to our Lord when we're confronted with those things? I think early in the Gospels, you know, um, you know Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, you know, Father, which art in heaven. And you get sort of, okay, this is how you would pray, you know, starting from addressing God as his Father and you dealing to his will be done. But I think in this um, experience here, we're being taught how to agonize, especially when we're, when you know that God's will is to do something, but your will is not in sync with his will. And I think we've all had that experience before, right? You know, you get up in the morning, you know you should be consecrating to yourself first thing in the morning, mm -hmm. but you just don't feel like it, right? Mm -hmm. You know that um, he's, he's laying those um, convictions on your heart. And we see here where Jesus says, you know, he's agonizing. You could see his humanity coming out. And that is really an example for us that it is okay to struggle with not wanting to do God's will mm -hmm. because Jesus struggled with that. Mm -hmm. But we see also that when he prayed and he agonized with the Father, in other um, references, in other Gospels, it was saying that the angels were sent to strengthen him. So he's able to, to aid those that are tempted. He's able to aid us who are tempted. And I think we could take some courage and we could take some, um, some solace in knowing that Jesus was fully acquainted with our griefs and our sorrows and our trials. 
and he has gained the victory, and so can we as well. Uh, one of the point is, in John chapter 12, it mentioned that he often resorted to this place in Gethsemane. And I think of this as Gethsemane was that place where he would go and unburden his heart to the Lord, right? In times, in good times and even in bad times. And we see that from him developing that practice of going to Gethsemane, when he faced a crisis of his life, he was able to be victorious. And we all need to have our Gethsemane, right? Where we go to gain strength each day, that when those serious trials come, we can, with crisis aid and his strength, that we can be victorious as well. Amen. Okay. Uh, the last, I mean, the other one point I wanted to make is Jesus was sitting there praying and pouring his heart out, and he requested his three beloved disciples to pray for him. And Sister White says, every time he was coming back to these uh, disciples and looking for them, if they could pray with me, even if they don't understand the, you know, magnanimity of this event, even if they could pray with me, even if they could do something, at least pray for themselves. He would have been greatly comforted. You know, no one really understood his heart. And that's what bothers me. Sometimes today, there are so many things in our church that we could pray for. We could pray for our, you know, uh, like the evangelistic series that is going on. Uh, everything that is happening, yeah, okay, we'll just say nominal prayer. But had we shared the heart of God, I'm, I'm telling this to myself because I'm guilty of this. Had I prayed like the way Jesus asked me to pray, can I imagine how many more souls would have been saved, how much more happiness it would have brought for Jesus' heart? Mm. So I am like that disciple that is sleeping, and I wish I remember this next time when I pray, when I, when I was asked to pray. It becomes so routine in our minds, yeah, okay, I'll just pray, and then very next moment I forget that. No, I, um I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a question, and this is drawing us to a close. What I'm, what I'm gathering is that the connection between these three individuals that we focused on and and what happens with Jesus in Gethsemane is one we see the humanity of Christ, right? That he's struggling at the precipice of this huge uh, undertaking of taking on the sins of the world, right? Not just the people that currently lived, but anyone who ever lived before, anyone who ever, like all of the weight of sin is going to be important, being um, placed on his shoulders. Um, and he's struggling with it. And in that struggle, he's looking for, for solace from his friends, which it's good to find solace in our friends, but his friends fail him. And, and like, you, like you were pointing out, in Desire of Ages, he, he's, the devil comes to him and says, you're going to die for these guys? They don't even get it. The other one is coming on his way to, you know, to, to betray you, right? And, and, and he's struggling with that, right? And, and, and yet, he decides that he's going to go through it. Now, here's my question, talking about the human, like we're learning from Christ's example. Um, someone mentioned that Mary... It seems that Mary had learned something, was learning something from Jesus that the other two guys was yet to learn, and one of them, unfortunately, would not live to learn it. How do we become a Mary instead of a Judas or a Peter? And I'll, I'll put it in this context. You rightly said that Peter was the, was one of, was the inner circle of Jesus, right? And then you have, you have Judas, who was with Jesus like all the time. It's almost like the closer you are to Jesus, the more likely it is that you're not going to make it. Lucifer was in the very presence of God, 
and he became the devil. So should I kind of be with Jesus once in a while, you know, come seven times and then like peace out? Like how, how like what, we didn't rehearse this question, so they look stumped. It's because I, I, I thought of it last night and I was like, man, like seriously, it's almost, it, it seems almost, we're not taking a hand for this one just because we're out of time, but but uh, we'll continue to discuss it on the floor. But let, I want to hear what you guys have to say. Like, how do how do we how do we be like Jesus? You know, you, you talked about this a long time ago with me, and I always remember. You said you quoted the Ellen White scriptures. The reason why God had Lucifer so close to him is because He wanted him to see the love in his character. He wanted him to see so clearly how holy and pure and loving he is so that if there is a slightest chance, he could change. Sometimes he brings us so close to him so that we open our eyes and see him and then be changed. And I think when you look at it, the problem with Lucifer, the problem with Judas, and to some degree even the problem with Peter is while they were close to Jesus, they still weren't focusing on Jesus. They were focusing on the fact that they were so close to Jesus. And so, you know, I think it comes back to Mary, who she, in a, in a certain sense, also enjoyed a special relationship with Jesus in that her home that she shared with her sister and her brother was the one that Jesus would choose to come to as a retreat. You know, so they had a special friendship with Jesus as well. But in the context of that special friendship, she was able to examine herself and see that he was the answer to the problems of her life, where Judas and Peter were not ready to acknowledge that they had problems with their life. They were just basking in that glory of being associated, associated with, Jesus. with Jesus. All right, Autumn, and then ladies, I think <laughs> going off of what Amy said, you know, that it was, I think it came to a point where, you know, Mary really saw herself. She knew she was a sinner. Judas was so focused on, you know, I want to be a part of the kingship of Christ. And then we have Peter who, you know, had that false security that he was close to Jesus, but he didn't really analyze himself. And it wasn't until he denied Jesus that he really came face to face with himself. Like, I don't really know this person. And, um, and just, you know, when Jesus had that encounter with Peter at the seaside and he kept asking Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you unconditionally agape love me? And Peter kept responding, I, I can't promise you that. Look at what I just did. I just denied you three times. I can't promise you that unconditional love. And so Peter, for the first time, looks at himself and says, I am nowhere near the person that I thought I was. I can't promise you that. But Peter was the one that we know was crucified for Jesus. He became a martyr. So he got that agape love. But it wasn't until he came face to face with his own, um, his own failings and his own sense of, I, I don't really know Jesus, that really ha we have that turnaround for him. You know, I'm thinking in, um, in Psalms, it says, be still and know that I'm God. In the context of Mary, at least when she's at Jesus' feet, you don't hear her speaking at all. She's really in his presence and sitting at his feet, hearing his word. And you look at those who have had, I'll say, salvific experiences. You think of Isaiah, when he saw Jesus high and lifted up, he was not speaking. He was actually just in the presence, at least in that vision. And when he saw a revelation of Christ, then he's like, you know, woe is me. We think of Job's experience and God said, he, you know, he feared God and eschewed evil. But when Job had all these questioning, questionings in his mind and God began to ask him a series of questions, in Job 42 it says, you know, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see at thee, and I repent in dust and ashes. 
What I take away from that, as with uh, Peter and with Judas, and even with us, even as we come to church to Sabbath, as we're in the presence of Jesus, a lot of times we're not really sitting still and really allowing God to minister to us. Mm -hmm. We need to kind of step back and allow <clears throat> to just be in his presence and to fully understand what he is to us rather than what we could be for him. Mm -hmm. You know, in their cases, like, hey, I want to be on your right hand, I want to be on your left hand, I want to be your treasurer, but... What is Jesus to you? Is he beautiful to you and altogether lovely? Is he indeed the savior of your sins? And for that, Mary had, had that understanding, and I think we could take some lessons from her experience. Awesome. And I think that brings us beautifully to, to the end of our study. I think the, the, the thread, the golden thread I'm seeing is being in the presence of God, but not just to be there and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about myself, I'm sitting there and actually focusing on who God is, right? Focusing on, and for those who went to seminars about emergent church, we're not talking about contemplative prayer, no. We're talking about actually meditating on the substance that we have in the Word of God. My, my phone up. Word of God, right? Um, and, and meditating on who God is, right? Sitting in, in the presence of God and letting God that was beautiful. Letting God minister to us, right? Not just being busy about doing stuff, but letting God minister to us. And part of that ministry is what David asks God. He says, search me, O God. I can't even search my own heart. God, I need for you to search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me, and then you lead me into the way everlasting, right? So this, this, this uh, self or what did we call it, self-realization, self-reflection, but not because I'm doing it, but I come into God's presence and allow him to search my heart. And, and that leads to an authentic experience as we see demonstrated in the life of Christ in Gethsemane, where we can fall before God and say, God, this is hard, but I'm going to do it because you're going to help me. Right? Who this morning because we can't end without an appeal when we come to God's word. Who this morning wants to say in their heart, Lord, I want you to search my heart. I want you to be the one who tells me who I am, and then I want you to be the one who leads me. This Sabbath, which is a day which is infused with your presence, I want you to minister to me. Does anyone want to say that? By show of hands. Let's bow our heads and pray. Loving Father, we pray that as you minister to our hearts, we can be transformed. We don't want to be like Judas for sure. We don't want to be like Peter vacillating. We don't even want to be like Mary. We want to be like Jesus, who when push came to shove in, in his darkest hour, he clung to you, even when he couldn't see through the portals of the grave. And Lord, we pray that you would give us that kind of an experience. Search our hearts this Sabbath day. Make this day an experience with you like no other. We don't need to leave the Sabbath the way that we came into it. We pray that as you transform us, we'll become a light for other people so that they can see Jesus too. We pray these things in your loving name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.